Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chills, a podcast where we talk about the paranormal, true crime, and anything creepy. I'm your host, Preston Porras. And I'm Nina Cardona. This episode, we are still talking about UFOs. We will be covering in detail America's most famous UFO incident, as well as the first sighting of the man in black. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Chills. In America, the most famous UFO incident happened in Roswell, New Mexico. It began in the summer of 1947, at the dawn of the Cold War, when the U.S. Army Air Forces sent out a shocker of a press release announcing they had recovered a flying disc from a ranch near Roswell. More than 70 years later, the incident remains a defining aspect of the area's identity. The town boasts a UFO museum and research center, a flying saucer-inspired McDonald's, alien-themed streetlights, even an extraterrestrial family stranded in a broken-down UFO on the side of State Route 285, looking for a jumpstart. But behind all the UFO mania lies an uneasy truth. The events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut. With admitted cover-ups and conflicting explanations, it was a saucer, it was a spycraft, it was the Soviets, and new ones are still emerging. Here are the agreed-upon facts about the Roswell crash. Sometime between mid-June and early July 1947, rancher W.W. Mac Brazil found the wreckage on his sizable property in Lincoln County, New Mexico, approximately 75 miles north of Roswell. Several flying disc and flying saucer stories had already appeared in the national press that summer, leading Brazil to believe the wreckage, which included rubber strips, tinfoil, and thick paper, might be something of that sort. He brought some of the material to Sheriff George Wilcox of Roswell, who in turn brought it to the attention of Colonel William Blanchard, the commanding officer of the Roswell Army Airfield. The next day, the RAAF released a statement writing that the many rumors regarding the flying disc become a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. According to that statement, Major Jesse Marcel, an intelligence officer, oversaw the RAAF's investigation of the crash site and the recovered materials. The government changed its story about the Roswell saucer a few times. The following day, the Roswell Daily Record ran a story about the crash and the RAAF's astonishing claim. But U.S. Army officials quickly reversed themselves on the flying saucer claim, stating that the found debris was actually from a weather balloon, releasing photographs of Major Marcel posing with pieces of the supposed weather balloon debris as proof. For decades, many UFO researchers were skeptical of the government's changed account, and in 1994, the U.S. Air Force released a report in which they concluded that the weather balloon story had been bogus. According to a 1994 explanation, the wreckage came from a spy device created for an until-then-classified project called Project Mogul. The device, a connected string of high-altitude balloons equipped with microphones, was designed to float furtively over the USSR, detecting sound waves at a stealth distance. These balloons would monitor the Soviet government's attempts at testing their own atomic bomb. Because Project Mogul was a covert operation, 
The new report claimed a false explanation of the crafts was necessary to prevent giving away details of their spy work. Other elements of the Roswell story, namely that some eyewitnesses claimed that there were alien bodies taken from the site, were explained as fallen parachute test dummies in a more extensive follow-up report in 1997. Roger Lanius, a historian and retired curator for the Division of Space History at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, says those two reports close most of the remaining questions about Roswell. The story has been resolved, Lanius says. Has absolutely every question been answered? I can't say that, but I'm not sure that there are significant holes. You do not divulge state secrets in the context of national security. My surmise is they probably saw the initial flying saucer explanation as a useful cover story. Donald Schmidt, a UFO researcher who has spent nearly three decades investigating the Roswell incident and is one of the co-founders of the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, says that the explanation makes little sense. The flying saucer story, he claims, was so ostentatious that it was bound to draw attention to the area with its sensitive military operations at the time. Doing so would seem highly counter to the interest of the War Department. Two hours west of Roswell, the first atomic bomb was detonated. You had ongoing atomic research at Los Alamos. You had this testing of captured German V-2 rockets at White Sands. And at Roswell, you had the first atomic bomb squadron headquartered, Schmidt says. The thought that they would have intentionally set up any type of publicity as a distraction, if anything, they needed less attention. Was Roswell's UFO from the USSR? Another questionable theory, advanced by the book Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base, states that the crashed flying vehicle was neither extraterrestrial nor the work of U.S. spies. Rather, it was an unconventional plan to induce widespread American panic, implemented by Soviet strongman Joseph Stalin. An unnamed source who worked as an engineer at Area 51 for the defense contractor EGNG told the book's author, Annie Jacobson, a veteran national security journalist and Pulitzer Prize nominee, that the program had been designed by Nazi concentration camp Dr. Josef Mengel. According to the source, adolescent children were deformed by the Soviets to resemble aliens and then deployed in an aircraft to fly over New Mexico. According to this book, Stalin's plan was for the children to climb out and be mistaken for visitors from Mars. Panic would ensue, and America's early warning radar system would be overwhelmed with sightings of other UFOs. That theory could go some way in explaining the wreckage described by Jesse Marshall Jr., the son of the intelligence officer named in the initial press report. According to Marcel Jr.'s book, The Roswell Legacy, his father brought some of the UFO wreckage home, allowing his son to handle the debated debris before he took it to his base. Marcel Jr. wrote that the material is metallic and I could see what looked like writing. At first I thought Egyptian hieroglyphs, but there were no animal outlines or figures. They weren't mathematical figures either. They were more like geometric symbols squares, circles, triangles, pyramids, and the like. Marcel Jr. was 11 years old at the time, and the Cold War only just began. Could the young boy have been reading the Cyrillic alphabet for the first time, allowing his imagination to do the rest? On this, Schmidt and Lanius agree. It's not likely. There's no evidence in any Soviet archives that there were such experiments as this, says Lanius. 
and if the attempt was to generate panic, it failed utterly miserably. So out of all the theories and it actually being aliens, what do you think it was? I think it's 100% aliens. These theories... I feel like the theories are a little far-fetched. Yeah, they're pretty out there. I would... I'd believe more in aliens than I would in some of these theories. It's gotta be aliens. Next, the UFO sightings that launched Men in Black mythology. In all of their different variations, the Men in Black usually have one main purpose, to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomena. It's possible that the story of the Men in Black, the mysterious figures that would become the subject of fascination in UFO conspiracy circles that eventually break into mainstream pop culture, can be traced back to one day, June 27, 1947. It's quite possible that it all started with a man, a boy, and a dog on a boat. As the story goes, Harold Daw was on a conservation mission on Puget Sound near the eastern shore of Washington's Mare Island, gathering logs when he saw six donut-shaped obstacles hovering about half a mile above his boat. Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet, followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Daw's son, Charles, on his arm, as well as the family dog, who did not survive the ordeal. Dahl was able to take some pictures of the aircraft with his camera, which he later showed to his supervisor, Fred Christman. A skeptical Christman went back to the scene to look for himself and saw a strange aircraft with his own eyes. The following morning, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. They ended up at a local diner where the man was able to recount in extraordinary detail what Dahl had just experienced. What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about his experience of yours than you will want to believe, the man said, according to the author Gray Barker's 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Dahl was supposed to not speak of the incident. If he did, bad things would happen. The supposed events of Mari Island have continued to fuel conspiracy theories to this day. Even though a U.S. government investigation deemed it a hoax after Dahl and Christman later admitted as much. In particular, the mention of the man in black suit would evolve into a key obsession for UFO enthusiasts and spread into American pop culture, thanks to a comic book series and a blockbuster movie trilogy. In all the different versions, the men in black usually have one main purpose, to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomena. They almost always wear black suits and hats with dark sunglasses, drive black cars, and arrive in groups of two or three. Some describe them as one would an FBI agent, while others recall the MIB as having strange appearances, sometimes with supernatural features like glowing eyes and strange complexions. So how did we get from Harold Daw to Will Smith? The transformation of the story from a first press report to a folkloric tale to a comic book and now to a film illustrates how a myth is transformed, wrote Phil Patton in the New York Times around the time the first Men in Black movie was released in 1997. The process is not unlike the children's game of telephone, or what the literal critic Harold Bloom calls innovation by misinterpretation. Sticking with the telephone analogy, the first call was made to Kenneth Arnold, a pilot who had his own alleged UFO sightings on June 24, 1947, near Mount Rainier, Washington. Though it happened three days after Mari Island incident, 
It was the first widely spread report sighting, and it touched off the saucer sensation, as was written in the 1949 government report of flying saucers. See, everything happens in the summer. The report states that Daw and Christman reached out to a Chicago magazine in an attempt to sell their story, and the magazine editor then contacted Arnold, hoping he could help verify their account. Arnold then summoned two officers of Army A2 Intelligence to aid in the investigation of Daw and Christman's claim, according to the report. In July of 1947, two Army A2 Intelligence officers came to investigate. After leaving in their V-25s the next day, the plane caught fire and crashed, killing both officers and doing nothing to quiet UFO conspiracists. That's suspicious. But the Mari Island story gained little notice in the UFO community until Barker's 1956 book, in which he wrote of his file on the Mari Island case that largely consisted of writings by Ray Palmer, the Chicago Magazine editor referred to the government's report. Barker went on to connect the dots between the man who wore the black suit, who took Daw to breakfast, and three similar dressed men who allegedly visited a young UFO enthusiast named Albert K. Bender in 1953. It was Bender who almost single-handedly ushered in the plague of the men in black, just as Arnold inaugurated the era of the UFO. UFOologist Nick Redfern wrote in the book The Real Men in Black, but it was Barker's book that told Bender's story thus introducing the concept of MIB to a much wider audience. It still has an important legacy, said Robert Schaefer, a UFO researcher. Before its publication, nobody outside a very narrow group of subscribers to Flying Saucer newsletters had ever heard of Bender or his Men in Black. Barker described Bender's version as three men in black suits with threatening expressions on their faces, three men who walk in on you and make certain demands, Three men who know that you know what the saucers really are. Bender, in his own 1962 book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, described the men in black in much more frightening language. They floated about a foot off the floor. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Hamburg style. The faces were not clearly discernible, for the hats partially hid and shaded them. The eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashing bulbs. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pains above my eyes became almost unbearable, wrote Bender. Barker would go on to write several more books related to the paranormal and UFOs, including 1970's The Silver Bridge, which helped spread the story of another popular paranormal figure, the creature known as Mothman. But how much of this writing was done in good faith has been called into question by many of the UFO research community. Barker made it clear to me that he did not take the Men in Black or Mothman very seriously, says Schaefer, who corresponded with Barker on occasion. However, he believed that there was still something mysterious about the whole UFO and paranormal thing. Regardless of Barker's motives, countless MIB encounters have been reported since. They Knew Too Much was published nearly 60 years ago, and at least one more movie is on the way. One more Men in Black movie? Did you just break Hollywood news? I didn't know there was another one on the way. Either way, I hope the men in black are real. That seems like such a cool concept. Like two or three guys in, in black suits show up at your door after you've seen an alien and wipe your brain. How is that cool? I think it's. What if that happens to you? What if you saw something? Also, it, why is everything happening in June and July? 
people get heat exhaustion and they start seeing stuff. Maybe. I think it'd be cool to be a man, a man in black. You get a cool suit. You get the cool hat. You know, aliens are out there. And you get to go to people and say, you're telling the truth. Now look at this little device. And then you wipe their memory. I don't know. I think aliens are real. That's the end of the story. I think men in black are real. I want to see one float. Like, Chris Angel, was that who used to do it? Yeah. Who used to float a foot off the ground? He's yeah. a, he's a man in black. <laughs> and that concludes this week's episode of Chills. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Chills Podcast NP for updates on when a new episode is released. If you have any personal paranormal stories you would like featured in our podcast, you can email us at chillspodcastnp at gmail.com. Wait, Men in Black 5 has been reported to be in development at Sony. Five? Where was the fourth one? But the sequel has yet to be officially announced by the studio or added into its release schedule. I think Chill's podcast just broke <laughs> No, that's, 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 broke some Hollywood just news. Just a quick Google search shows you that. Men in Black 4 already came out. Where June was 14th, I? 2019. Is that the one that tells the story of Jay's dad? Yeah, I don't know. Listen, I don't I don't think I've only seen like the first one. We'll see you Monday. <laughs>